Revelation chapter 14. Title of the message is Take It to the Bank. You can take it to the bank. Um, So when Brenda and I were first married, 1985, uh, when we were first married, um, we, uh, we got our first apartment. And it was, uh, it was a cool little place. It was about a mile from the beach. Um, and uh, it was one of those apartment buildings where there's like 14, you know, units in it, maybe a dozen units, not, you know, not a huge complex. And the owners of the place, Walt and Bonnie, they were great to us, just really took good care of us, gave us a low rent and all, you know, Brenda's 20, I'm 21, and, and just their uh, cool little place. And one day, Walt is over at the, at the house, and uh, he was retired from McDonnell Douglas, and, um, and so he was there, he was talking to me, and for whatever reason, he's sharing with me a story from when he worked at McDonnell Douglas. And basically, they had tasked him with a responsibility to, sh- to sell one of their vintage aircraft, a DC-3 air- aircraft, and so they wanted him to sell this. They had it down at Van Nuys Airport. And, um, and there was a guy that was interested, and so Walt was down there to meet him. This guy's name was Sam, and he comes pulling up, he's driving this old pickup truck, he's dressed in coveralls, and <clears throat> goes and tours the, the airplane, and so he says to Walt, uh, yeah, I'll take it, can, can I write you a personal check? And, and, you know, we're talking, I don't know how much it was, it was a lot of money, I, I, like a million dollars, I don't know, it was a lot of money. And the guy wants to write him a personal check. And so Walt says, well, I'm going to have to call your bank just to, conf- just to clear it to make sure it's okay. The guy says, yeah, that's okay. <clears throat> so Walt calls the bank, and he gets finally this gal at this guy's bank. And he's, he's talking to her. He, says, he tells her who he is and all. He said, look, I got I to gotta check and, and make sure that this guy's check is good. She goes, oh, the check is good. And if he writes you a check for your company, that one would be good too. It was Sam Walton, the, uh, the guy that started Walmart and Sam's Clubs. Well, I, I think when the guy died, he had over $8 billion with a B in his checking account. Yes, the check was good. You could take it to the bank. Uh, cool little story, right? Well, that's the idea of Revelation chapter 14. You can take it to the bank. We're looking at God's faithfulness here. And as we're going to see, the concepts in Revelation chapter 14, they aren't take it or leave it concepts. Hey, they're take it to the bank certainties. That's what we're looking at here, the certainty of God's faithfulness. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I, John, the apostle John says, I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. You're going to see a lot of symbolism in this chapter. All of the stuff that we see and associate with heaven. You know, people playing harps people sitting on clouds, all of that symbolism is here in this, in this chapter. And so he hears the sound of harpists playing their harps. Verse 3, they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb 
wherever he goes. Kind of a cool verse there, just to stop, ponder that, following the Lamb wherever he goes. Uh, These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. If you're taking notes, first point to write down, as we look at the faithfulness of God, we're looking at a faithful harvest of saints. A faithful harvest of saints. Right away, we see and we recognize this group as the 144,000 witnesses that we were introduced to in Revelation chapter 7. And these are the witnesses who God sealed. We see here that they have God's name, His seal, written on their foreheads. And the text puts it here strategically right after chapter 13 where we see those that received the mark of the beast, 666, to be written on their forearm or on their forehead. And and so here we have these that have been sealed. Now, when we were first introduced to these guys in chapter 7, we looked at this idea of God sealing his, his people. And, and the best example of God's protective seal upon his people, well, we find it in Exodus chapter 12. Um, you know, the story there, uh, G- God has spoken to Moses, told him to go to Pharaoh of Egypt to say, let my people go. And uh, Pharaoh has hardened his heart. And, and every time it seems like he's going to let them go, then he, he won't let them go. And there's a series of plagues that God, through Moses, uh, delivers or, or uh, has, you know, go down there in Egypt just to get Pharaoh to, to relinquish and to let his people go. Well, continues to harden his heart, and it finally culminates in, in God saying, all right, here's the deal. Tell Pharaoh I'm going to send the angel of death, and I'm going to strike dead the firstborn of every household. And listen, while you're at it, go talk to the Israelites and let them know that the angel of death is coming and that if they want that angel of death to pass over their house, that they need to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house. We talked about this last week, how in the Old Testament, everything there is to look forward uh, in faith to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we have an example there in the Old Testament, a picture of of Jesus, the Lamb of God, that would be slain for the sins of the world. Uh, The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we're yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And so what happens with us is that because we are sinners by nature and by choice, well, the Bible says that God has sent, sent Jesus to pay the penalty that we that, that, that we owe, and the Bible says the penalty for sin, the wages of sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus, that sacrificial lamb, the lamb who takes away the sins of the earth, gave his life, suffered and died. And what happens is that we, by faith, when we receive the forgiveness of our sins by Jesus paying the penalty, then we are sealed, the blood of the lamb seals us. And so we have that example in Exodus 12 of the Passover, the sealed doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over and they would be protected. Now, that's not the only time that God sealed his servants to protect them and to use them in times of judgment. He sealed Noah's family in the ark to protect them from the flood. And he sealed Rahab's family when he destroyed Jericho. And he sealed Lot's family from his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he sealed the firstborn uh, of the Israelites on Passover, as we just talked about. And God has sealed us 
The Bible says that, it, that you know, God has sealed you with his Holy Spirit if you've confessed him as Lord and Savior. Here's what Paul said to the Ephesians. He said, in him, speaking of in Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, here it is, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And so God sealed these 144,000 Um, And he did so for these three reasons, for their protection, for his glory, but listen, also for their serving, their service of him. They were sealed for service. In fact, when we were introduced to them in chapter 7, it tells us there, God identifies these 144,000 witnesses as his servants, The Greek word is the word doulos. Here's what it means. It means one who gives himself up to do God's will in extending and advancing his cause among men. This is a servant. This is a doulos. And that's what these witnesses were. They were those that gave themselves up to do God's will in extending and advancing his cause among men during the tribulation period, during the most difficult Painful, difficult is a, pain, is a tame word of what the tribulation period is going to be like. And they are those servants of God during that time. And, and so we read here in verse 4, this is exactly what they did. As the account now comes, uh, this is them standing up on, on Mount Zion with Jesus. And, and what happens? It says, well, these are the ones who were not defiled with women for they were virgins. And that's just face value. That's exactly what it is. But it's bigger than that. The spiritual implication is is that these guys were not defiled by uh, a false religious system either. They they were pure. Um, And these are the ones, he goes on to say, who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And then he goes on in verse 5 to say, In their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And so there's, you know, this idea of being without fault before the throne of God doesn't mean that they were sinless, by the way. It means that they're not hypocrites. It means that, that they're pure in their integrity of following the Lord. They're not people who are without sin, but no, they are, they are, they're cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and they're with integrity following after the Lord. And, and it, this, the idea of them being the, the first fruits, um, these were redeemed from among men being first fruits to God. Well, what is a first fruit? It's just that. It's the first fruit. The implication is that through their faithful service of the Lord that there was an abundant harvest that, that they were a part of. That in, in other words, there were many people through their faithful witness, faithful service to God, that were going to come into a saving faith uh, in Christ as well. Their ministry was, was phenomenal. They led many people into the kingdom. Jesus said this, he's, in John's gospel, he said, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Get what Jesus is saying there. He says, listen, my Father's glorified when you bear much fruit, and by the way, when you bear fruit, that's the proof that you're mine. 
the, 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 the actions that you live out. Turn real quickly to the left. Go to Colossians chapter 3. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Just real quickly make a quick point and observation. Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> So Colossians chapter 3, here, verse 1, Paul is speaking to the, the Colossian Christians. He says, if then you were raised with Christ. That, by the way, in the Greek doesn't mean if then, maybe you are, maybe you aren't. It's if then and you are. That's the way it's written in the Greek. And the implication is, hey, you know, since. That's, that's more of the idea. He's talking to New, New Testament believers. And so he essentially says, since you were raised with Christ... What are you supposed to do? Well, he says, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then he says, therefore, and he starts talking about things that they need to put to death. Therefore, because you're in Christ, because you're saved, because you're going to heaven, hey, there's stuff you got to put to death in your life. There's stuff that you got to put off from your life. There's stuff that you need to put on in your Christian life. There's stuff that you need to press on in. That's the rest of the, the, the book of Colossians goes on to talk about those things. And, and so what Paul does here is he touches on three major Christian doctrines. The doctrine of justification in verse 1 the doctrine of glorification in verse 4, and then starting in verse 5 and throughout the rest of the book, he touches on this doctrine of sanctification. These are big words, simple meanings. The doctrine of justification in verse 1, hey, since you have been raised with Christ, that's, hey, you know, the idea is you're a sinner, you deserve hell, Jesus died for you, you've received him, you've confessed faith in him, you've surrendered your life to him, hey, guess what? You've been justified. That's the doctrine of justification. Just, just as if I'd never sinned is the idea. And so he says, hey, you've, you've, you've been justified. Well, then in verse 4, he says, when Christ who is our life appears, you also will appear with him, here it is, in glory. In other words, what he says is, look, there's a day coming when you're going to be glorified together with Christ. Revelation 14, when we look at these 144,000 witnesses, that's what's going on. Up in Mount Zion, they're being glorified together with Christ. This is the realization of what is all of our hope as Christians. That, that I've been sanctified, and there's a coming a day when, when I will be glorified together with Christ or in Christ. And so there's this beautiful thing that's going to happen. But, hey, there's also this needfulness of being sanctified. And sanctified, big word, simple meaning, it just means to be set apart to God. And that's why Paul talks about, hey, you got to put stuff off, you got to put to death some stuff in your life, you got to put some, some good stuff on, you got to press on in some things. And, and if you go back now to Revelation 14, what we're seeing here is that there's 144,000 witnesses Hey, they, having done this sanctifying work that we see in verse 4, they're the ones that follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They're the ones who were not defiled with women, who were virgins. Um, they're uh, the first fruits uh, to God um, uh, and, and to the Lamb. And their mouth was, in their mouth was found no deceit, uh, for they're without fault before the throne of God. They're set apart to God. 
And this is the testimony that's going down here. The point is, is that there's this needfulness in our lives that we are to live out a a genuine faith. We're not earning a right standing with God, but it should naturally be a part of what is true salvation. See, James said this. He says we're supposed to be doers of the word and not hearers deceiving ourselves. We pray that every week. And he goes on to, to basically say this. He says, look, faith without works is dead. The idea is that if you are a child of God, then your life ought to change. It's not that you're sinless, but it's that you actually sin less, okay? It's been said a faith that doesn't change you doesn't save you. That, look, if you call yourself a Christian, but there's no discernible evidence in how you live your life, then you need to check your spiritual pulse and see if, in fact, you are a true follower of God. And so, there is a big difference between those who, who pay mouth service to God, lip service to God, but whose life really doesn't line up with the things that they profess. And so what we're talking about here, you know, here at Reliance Church, we have nine values, nine core values that shape and inform everything that we do. And one of those core values is service. We articulate it this way. We say, at Reliance Church, we are contributors, we are not consumers. Um, See, big difference between the two, big difference between a contributor and a consumer. See, a consumer asks, what's in it for me? What can you give me? What do you have to offer me? But listen, a contributor says, how can I help? Uh, what can I do? What do I have to offer? How has God gifted me? How, how can I, you know, how has God blessed me that I can be a blessing to others? Not earning a right standing with God, but saying, no, but because of what God has done for me, then there needs to be an obedient way that I live my life to say, God, like these 144,000 that are now in glory together with you, what were they? They were faithful servants. How can I, Lord, be a faithful servant? Again, not earning that opportunity to be with you, but just the demonstrated proof of, of what's in my heart. See, this is the critical thing we got to understand. If my faith doesn't translate into action, well, then maybe not, it's not a genuine faith. Paul said this to the Hebrews. He said, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so what we see here in chapter 14 is we see this 144,000. They're receiving their reward. They're standing with Jesus on Mount Zion. Now, the Bible speaks of two Mount Zions. There is the actual city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, that the psalmist talks about in Psalm 48. That Jerusalem is Mount Zion. It's an actual physical Mount Zion. But Hebrews chapter 12 talks of a heavenly Mount Zion. And so this begs the question, when it talks about these 144,000 witnesses... Being on Mount Zion with Jesus, is this talking about the physical Mount Zion in Jerusalem or is this talking about the heavenly Mount Zion in God's kingdom? And, and the, the fact of the matter is, is that commentators are split right down the middle. There's lots of wise men who insist this is actually physically 
Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Jesus, this is his second coming. He has come back. He is now setting up his millennial kingdom. He's on Mount Zion, and the 144,000 witnesses are physically there with him at that event during that time. And then there's other equally as intelligent commentators, people much smarter than me, taking both positions. So there's others that take the position that say, well, no, no, this is spiritual Mount Zion. These 144,000 have, have, have died and they've gone to heaven and they're now with the Lord in heaven, in the heavenly Mount Zion. So which one is it? I don't know, and you can pick, and I haven't given you all the details of why people pick different sides. I just don't have time to get into it. But the point is, it's, it's not important which one it is. I, personally, I think it's physical Mount Zion, that Jesus physically is there on Mount Zion, and that they physically are there with him, that they were sealed, that they were protected from the Antichrist, and so on. Um, but, but it doesn't matter which position you take because it doesn't change the message. And here's the message. God is faithful. God is absolutely faithful. And when he seals you, he doesn't lose you. You're with him and he's going to take care of you. And, and listen, here's what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, he, speaking of the Lord, will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. That's what you need to know, that God is faithful. He is absolutely faithful. And if you trust him with your life, he'll, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Nobody will ever snatch you out of his hand. God's faithful and you will be with him in glory. And so what we see here, God sealed the 144,000 for his work, for his protection, for his glory. They were faithful in their witness. Through them, many were saved. Now, before I move on, I just want to point out one other thing. And I think this is so cool. For me, this personally just ministered to my heart so greatly. They're standing with Jesus on Mount Zion and they're worshiping. And notice, they're singing a song that only heaven knows and nobody can know the lyrics but they know the lyrics. And, and, and here's the way I would describe it. Brenda and I, we've been married 32 years. And, and we got our own song, metaphorically speaking. And nobody else knows the lyrics to our song. But we know the lyrics to our song. And, and, it, and it is a, it's a beautiful song and we make beautiful music together. You know? And, and what happens here is that they have this special song that they enjoy. It's the song of heaven. And, and nobody else can know these lyrics. Why? Because these 144,000, they have been through what they've been through, and it's been them and Jesus, and it's their song. And just the same way, you have your song with the Lord that you go through and, and the things that God takes you through. And I just ask you, how's your song going? You know, and, 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 it, and the song is written on the mountaintop and it's written in the valley it's, you've got these harmonies and these melodies, but it's this song. And, and so here they've got this beautiful song, this beautiful experience of God's faithfulness. Well, the next thing that we have, the next, next example, is God's faithfulness. He's a faithful herald of the gospel. God's faithfulness shows up in that he is a faithful herald of the gospel. Verse 6. John says, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. 
saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. See, we're seeing God's faithfulness being demonstrated here in that He is still proclaiming the gospel. He still desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And so he sends his angel out, and his angel is saying, Hey, give glory to God. Fear God. It's not too late. Fear the Lord. Um, Verse 8, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. In other words, the message is going out, look, you know, first angel, fear God, it's not too late, repent. The second angel going out, don't trust in Babylon, the city is fallen, it's a fallen system, it's broken, you don't want to go down that road. And then, verse 9, a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Uh, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And so the first angel goes out, says, hear the gospel, fear God. Second angel goes out, says, don't, do not trust in Babylon, it's fallen. This third angel goes out and basically says, look, don't take the mark of the beast. Don't go down that road. There is a real hell. It's a tormenting place. Over and over again, God crying out. Verse 13, and then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works, uh, and their works follow them. Verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And so we have a, a picture here of Jesus. And another angel, verse 15, came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. There's a common misconception that unless we, you and me, men, Unless we preach the gospel to everyone that Jesus won't return until that happens. Now, where we get this from is from Jesus himself. In Matthew's gospel, he said this. Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness uh, to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, certainly, that is the objective of the Great Commission. We are commissioned by God. We are told to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. That's what we're mandated to do, and that's what we do. We, we work to go into all the world. 
But in the last days, what we learn here is that God is going to send an angel to preach to every nation, tongue, and tribe. And he does this for, for a couple of very important reasons. First of all, he does this because his heart is that nobody should perish. God desperately wants people to be redeemed. He wants them to be saved from, from the wrath that is to come. But he also does this so nobody can have an excuse. Nobody can say, hey, I never heard the gospel. I never knew that. Just like your kids do, you know. It's like when you're, when you're coming in and you're dropping the wrath, they're like, oh, I never knew that. You're like, I'm, oh, now it's going to be double because of course you knew that. And God's like, I, I sent my angel. You know, you always have the people that when you're trying to share the gospel, you always have the people that are, that are so concerned about the African in, you know, the, the pygmy from Africa, right? It's like, oh, I don't know. Like what, it just seems so unfair. What about the poor pygmy in Africa who never heard of the gospel? You know, what I always like to do is to answer that a few different ways. One of the ways I answer that is with, with this verse. I'm just like, well, hey, look, God's going to preach the, the gospel with an angel from heaven like everybody will hear. Another example I like to use is in the book of Acts. You got Philip there. Philip is pastoring a church in Samaria. It's Calvary Chapel, Samaria going off the hook. They got like 12 services. They're, they're just, you know, just busting at the seams. And all of a sudden, God comes to Philip and he, and he says, hey, leave. I want you to go to the desert. Uh, there's one dude I want you to go minister to. And who is it? It's a dude from Africa. God sends him to go share the gospel with him. The guy gets saved. He baptizes him there, right? And, and the point is, is that God gets his word to who he wants to get to. Like, God will find you. He will, he will send the messenger that he needs to send. The other argument to that is, hey, listen, the Bible says God reveals himself in his creation, that the heavens declare his glory. Everybody is responsible to the revelation that God gives to them. So to the degree that God reveals himself to you, to the revelation that you receive, that's what you're responsible to. Which, by the way, for you guys here today, you have the full revelation. Hey, are you, are you walking with the Lamb wherever He tells you to go? Have, have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior because He's laid it out for you? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who died on the cross for your sin in your place, who rose again, who now says to you, repent, receive me as your Lord and Savior. You're now, you are fully responsible for that information. And so God in the last days, he's going to send his angel to preach to every nation, tongue, and tribe. And again, we see the faithfulness of God. What do we see? We, we see the faithfulness of a God who tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Listen, this is cool little observation here. Got this uh, from, from uh, a buddy of mine over at Harvest Christian Fellowship, um, Jeff Lassane, but, but he points out um, the word ripe in verse 15, when this angel comes, cries out to the Lord, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. Here's what he says, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. You see that word ripe at the end of verse 15? If you want to circle that word, if you're given to taking notes in your Bible, this is one you want to take. Circle the word ripe, and nearby, here's what you write. You write, overly ripe to the point of being rotten. 
That's what that word literally means. It means overly ripe to the point of being rotten. The angel is saying to Jesus, hey, listen, thrust in your sickle and reap because, man, over, it's overly ripe to the point of being rotten. In other words, this, these people that, you're, that the, what are now the last people that Jesus is going to redeem from the earth, they are, they're, 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 they're overly ripe. They're rotten now. You ever, you, you know, you got your, your fruit bowl at home and, and have you ever noticed you've got there in your fruit bowl, you've got bananas and bananas basically, they have, they have three different seasons for like forever they're green and you can't eat them. And then for about an hour and a half, they're ripe <laughs> to where you can eat them. And then what are they? They're overly ripe. And, and, I can't bring myself to throw away the overly ripe bananas. They taste horrible, but what do I do? Man, I'll make banana bread out of them. And the, the, over, the more ripe they are, the better the banana bread. This is Jesus here who, who is, who he just, he, he looks, he's going he's gonna to reap. It, you, you're, you're rotten. But God loves you and wants to redeem you. Man, he is faithful. And that's the picture here. And people go, okay, well, you're talking about how good God is. Well, you just sort of glossed over there in those verses you read. I mean, what, what about all the fire and brimstone talk and the smoke and the suffering and all of that? You know, what do you, you, we want to talk about God's goodness, but, but what do you do with all those verses? Here's what I do. I say, that's why God sends 144,000 witnesses, 144,000 witnesses to the earth. That's why God sends this angel to proclaim, these three angels to proclaim, repent. Look, God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And what he's just pointing out how horrible it's going to be. He's saying, please, don't go down this road. You have no idea the, the suffering, the torment, how bad it is. Repent. That's the heart of his message. He's just saying, I love you, repent. And I love how the Holy Spirit throws in here because, you know, this is the tribulation period. And so this is not, it's not all puppy dogs and butterflies during this time. And he says in verse 13, uh, blessed are the dead, who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, it's coming from the Spirit of God, that they may rest from their labors and their works. Follow them, right? And so what's, what's happening here, look, this angel is saying, the angel, or the, the Holy Spirit rather, God himself is saying, look, you're gonna receive blessing and you're gonna receive rest and you're gonna receive reward. He's, he's saying, it's a bad time and, and, and you're gonna suffer and many of you are going to die, you're going to be persecuted, but listen, when that goes down, you're going to receive blessing, you're going to be receiving rest, you're going to be receiving reward. It, the words that he used here are, are very similar to the word that the psalmist uses in Psalm 116, verse 15, where it tells us, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That word precious, it literally means prized, it means held near, it means highly valued. And God's saying, don't lose heart, don't lose hope. I know it's difficult and I know some of you are gonna be put to death in some hor horrible ways, but you're precious to me and I'm not gonna lose you. I'm gonna draw you nearer myself. You're highly valued. Well, this brings us now to the third and final focus of God's faithfulness in this chapter. Chapter 14 is a chapter of faithfulness. And this third and final focus of God's faithfulness, well, here's the point if you wanna write it down. We see a faithful harvest of wrath. 
a faithful harvest of wrath. Verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And so the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city because they didn't want to defile the city. Uh, It was trampled outside the city and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles, that's about four feet, for 1,600 furlongs, that's about 185 miles. That's a lot of blood right there. Now, we're looking at a faithful harvest of wrath. See, here's the thing. The first angels, they heralded the gospel. And, and, and it's a call to repentance. But now the next angels, they're bringing a harvest of wrath. Again, my friend Jeff from Harvest, he makes this observation. He says that this chapter is filled with words that are associated with harvesting. That, that you have first fruits, you have reaping, you have ripe, you have grapes, you have vine, you have wine press. But here now what happens after God has exhausted every means possible to bring in a harvest of joy. Well, we see the angels with the sickle and, and with the power of fire and now they're reaping their harvest of wrath. Jesus talked about in Matthew's gospel, he, he shared a, a parable, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Parable was about a farmer, and the farmer basically, if I can paraphrase the story, farmer has this 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 crop of wheat, and his servants come to him and they and they tell him, hey, you know the, the wheat crop is growing, but but you got all these tares that are there in with the wheat, and he and the farmer replies, he says, yeah, an enemy did this. I sowed good seed, but an enemy came and sowed basically weeds among the crop, and so now you've got the wheat, and you've got the weeds, you've got the tares that are growing up. And so servants say to him, well, do you want us to go rip out all the, all the, the tares? You want us to, whip, to rip out all the weeds that are among that harvest? The wheat, by the way, symbolic of, of Christians, of God's children. The tares, symbolic of the unrepentant, those who are unsaved. So they say, you want us to rip out all the tares? And, and, and he says this, He says, let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is what we have in view here in chapter 14. Jesus is reaping the last harvest of believers, the wheat into the barn, if you will, and, and so this is what he's doing, but uh, then begins this harvest of wrath. This is when the vines of the earth, notice there in verse 18, they're called, the last two words of verse 18, the grapes are fully ripe. Different word, by the way, I had you look at ripe in the preceding word, which was basically it's overly ripe to the point of rottenness, and Jesus is going to redeem it. This ripe, hey, the vines are ripe, This means they're perfectly right. But it's not talking about believers. It's talking about the vines of the earth. It's talking about the unrepentant. Basically, the point is, hey, they're perfectly ripe, 
for judgment is what they're ripe for. This is, they're ripe for the wrath of God to be poured out here. And so the angel now thrusts in the sickle and throws them in the wine press. Now here's how a wine press worked, okay? A wine press works to where you've got a large vat and you've got a smaller vat. And in the large vat, they would throw all the grapes in the large vat and that's where they're crushed. And then the juice flows out of the larger vat and it flows down into the smaller vat. And so what we have here is this blood that he says is going to flow four feet high for 185 miles. And if you look geographically at the, the nation of Israel and how it lays out, the Valley of Armageddon where the Bible says the last battle takes place, which sits upper, it's the upper vat where everybody's going to be crushed. Well, you, you travel about 185 miles and you get down into southern Israel, which is lower, the lower vat. And this is what's going to be coming. We're going to be reading about this in the chapters to come to where there's this last, final, all the people of the earth come together to make war against Jesus Christ and he crushes them. That's what we have in view here. Let me share three concluding thoughts with you. Number one, if you're a follower of Jesus, what does chapter 14 mean to you? Here's what it means. Live your lives like the 144,000. That's what it means. It means don't lose heart. Trust in the Lord. Have faith in him because he's faithful. Keep following the lamb wherever he goes. In fact, I would write that down maybe if I were you take a walk with it this week, a prayerful walk. This is one of those things that you just hold open for the Lord and you say, Lord, am I following you wherever you go? And, and is there an area where I'm not following you, where I've been unwilling to follow you? Maybe an area that I'm afraid to follow you. Maybe something that I, I don't want to follow you because it means that I need to forsake something. Just take a walk with that. Lord, am I going to follow you wherever you go? See, whatever your situation, whatever your circumstance today, I would encourage you, the message of chapter 14 is to trust Jesus because he's faithful. Job 19, 25 and 26, Job says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I will see God. Now you've got to understand what's going on in Job's life here. In, in, in chapter 19, just, just prior to, I mean, God allowed Satan to attack him. He allowed him to be afflicted. He was covered uh, in, in boils such that he would take a broken pot shard just to scrape his skin to try and get some relief. And just a few verses before this in Job 19, he's talking about how his wife can't even stand him. Like she, she can't, it actually talks about how his wife can't stand his bad breath. And just, I mean, his wife actually says to him at some point, just curse God and die, would you? I mean, what a great bedside manner, you know? Honey, I'm so sorry that, that you're sitting. No, not even that. Just curse God and die. This is the state that he's in, but then this is how he finishes it. You know what? Yeah, all of that. My life right now is a train wreck. But here's what I know. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know he's going to stand on the earth in the end. And listen, after my skin is destroyed, I know that in my flesh I'm going to see God. Listen, that's the encouragement to you today if you're a follower of Jesus. That's what chapter 14 says to us. If you're outside of a faith in Jesus Christ today, please hear me. Hear the Lord's voice. Hear the heart of a faithful God who loves you desperately. 
loves you so much that he would send Christ to die for you. Listen, God is going after, he's been called the hound of heaven. He desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. Third thing I would say in that regard, if you're outside of a saving faith in Christ, don't confuse God's long-suffering with God being okay with your sin. Because inevitably what's going to happen is God is going to pour out his, his wrath. The day is coming when God has to judge sin. And he will pour out his wrath. 